Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. There is another deal in the payments industry. Global Payments today agreed to buy Total System Services in a deal valued at $21.5 billion, the payment industry's third mega merger of the deal. Uh, we can get the details from the person himself, Jeff Sloan, CEO of Global Payments. He joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Jeff, thanks so much for joining us. I know it's a busy, exciting day for you guys at your company. I know you and TSS have been looking at each other for a while why do the deal now? Well, I think the rate of innovation in payments is only accelerated. If you look, for example, here in New York, as well as in the United States, contactless, the announcement you've seen from Visa and JP Morgan coming to the subways uh, in Manhattan uh, in the next month or two is just one example of the rate of continued innovation and acceleration of change in payments. Therefore, it's important that you have scale. It's hard to make those investments and in all the new products and services that are the most attractive to our merchant base without having enough scale to fund those in the first place. So it's pretty clear over the last few months that the bar for scale is ever higher. So is scale uh, with respect to which business? Because it's interesting that uh, there is overlap with you and Total System Services, TSS, when it comes to catering to smaller businesses. Uh, they do, though, have a business processing payments for larger uh, financial firms. How do you get scale with that versus just diversification at that point? Yeah, the servers don't know the difference is kind of the answer at the end of the day. So we're going to be making the same kind of investments capital-wise as a technology matter into the same kind of environments, whether it's on the card issuer side or the merchant side. And Global Payments does this already today. So there's a lot of similarities between our two businesses. For example, uh, we have about 500 FIs, financial institutions, that are uh, customers of Global Payments today globally. TSIS has um, about 900. So there's a lot of overlap in terms of the products and services that we provide to those large, complicated financial institutions that TSIS does as well, number one. Number two, there's obvious overlap between the issuer business that you were asking about at TS2 and what we do at Global Payments. So for example, the same folks, the same financial institutions who are buying the issuing business are also uh, providing referrals to the merchant business. The same types of technologies that we deploy in the merchant business are also being deployed in the issuing business. That's particularly true overseas, but increasingly, if you look at these other deals, also true in the United States. Why Fiserv and why Fidelity, but debit gateways is part of what they do, is to emulate what we'll be able to do on the issuing side, combining issuer processing with acquirer processing. So that means if you use your credit card at a merchant, I know it's you from the issuer side, and then I know where you're spending it from the acquiring side. That's what those debit gateways do, and that's what a combined global payments and TSIS will do. So if I'm a fintech M&A banker, this is a great year for me. Three three deals so far. Give our just give us a sense of how f the, the the structure of your industry. How fragmented is it still? Do you envision more consolidation? Is this a global consolidation play? Just give us a sense of how the industry is structured. So the nice thing about the industry is it consistently reinvents itself. So it's a scale business, so there's always going to be more consolidation. But part of what's driving change, to go back to your first question, is the rate of techno technological innovation. So think about it. Apple was not out there with Apple Pay five years ago. Square didn't exist 10 years ago. Google didn't have Android Pay. Samsung didn't have Samsung Pay. So think about the folks who have come into the business. So today, for example, you have Stripe for startups and small merchants. You have Square, which is a, a public company um, as well. You've got plenty of examples. Adyen, which is a public company in e-com uh, in Ireland, but is worldwide in scope. You have plenty of examples of companies today that either didn't exist five or 10 years ago or didn't remotely look like 
what they look today. So the future is very bright for the industry. There's going to be continued consolidation because of scale functions that we've been describing, but there's also going to be continued new entrants. I think at the end of the day, the ability to provide banking-like services through open APIs, the scale you get in cloud-based and SaaS computing, which we're very focused on at Global Payments and TSIS, that's what's driving the rate of innovation you're seeing today. So do you expect to eventually expand out into banking-like services for some of your clients, lending to some of your uh, smaller merchants? No, where we draw the line, and some people like Square actually don't draw this line, but uh, where we draw the line is we're independent, we're not a bank by ourselves. Um, at Global Payments, and neither is TSIS. In fact, we don't want to compete with our customer base, so it's very important for us to stay out of uh, functions in banking. That's not true for some of our competitors, like a Square, which provides direct lending in conjunction with third parties. We actually provide referrals of merchants who are looking for loans out to FIs, our partners, that's our job, rather so, than to provide that directly ourselves. So then how do you respond to people who say, right now, smaller, mid-sized merchants, they just want to simplify what they do. They don't want to have to figure out uh, sort of a bespoke financial payments processing system and then figuring out their relationship with a banker. And so we'll just go to Square. What do you say to the people who are, who are wondering about that? So we have the same complete ecosystem that Square has. The difference with us is we have it from the small guy to the big guy, and we have it in 100 countries where Square is predominantly, as a pure revenue matter, predominantly in the United States. So we have all that. So today, a Heartland, which is one of our businesses, sales representative can walk into a small merchant here in Manhattan, and on your phone, on that person's phone, can underwrite that merchant, get that merchant up and running, provide a loan, provide payroll, you name it, we have it. So we have the ecosystem that they have. The difference with us is we're more multinational in scope. We can go from the really small guy, we call it the taco truck, up to Taco Bell, which is one of our customers. So we can do it at the small level as well as the enterprise level, really in 100 countries. Jeff Sloan, CEO of Global Payments, joining us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, talking about his a big deal today. So Jeff, you know, $21.5 billion all-stock deal. Your stock's kind of hanging in. You're only down to 2% uh, today, so that's a pretty good sign that the market likes what they're hearing. What kind of synergies did you promise the market revenue and cost synergies? Because I'm assuming you got to deliver some accretive EPS. Yeah, so it is accretive out of the box, you're right. Uh, we said it's mid-single digits accretive to the uh, combined company in 2020 and double digits accretive thereafter. So we think it's a very uh, attractive financial profile, very similar to what we announced in Heartland, actually, when we did that deal in 2015. What we said in our call this morning was at least 300 million of expense synergies and at least 100 million of revenue synergies within three years. And we really do plan to get most of the expense integration done in the first 18 months. So we do expect a pretty good ramp um, on the synergy expectation. And to give you a sense, when we did the Heartland transaction, um, we talked about 125 million in synergies and we ended up producing far in excess of that. So we have a very good track record uh, in delivering those synergies. Thank you so much for being here and congratulations on the deal. Uh, Jeff Sloan is Chief Executive Officer of Global Payments, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studios. Uh, his company agreed to buy Total System Services at a deal valued at $21.5 billion. Looking at the 10-year up 10.30 seconds today, pushing that yield down to 2.28%. How much lower can yields go? We go to our next guest, Eric Stein. Eric is a portfolio manager and co-director of Global Fixed Income at Eaton Vance. Eaton Vance has about $460 billion under management. They're located in Boston. Uh, Eric, thanks so much for joining us. How much, you know, what's also, you know, been in the, the, the front pages over the last several weeks have been the escalating trade tensions with China. How much of the action we're seeing in the treasury market is kind of reflecting that uncertainty? 
Yeah, well, first off, thanks for having me on. I mean, I think if you look at all of 2019, uh, which also includes, you know, the first quarter where risk markets were doing well and people thought we were going to have at least a a decent settlement with the China trade war in the short term, uh, Treasury yields continued this grind lower. So certainly, you know, some of the action we've seen with yields continuing to decline over the past couple weeks, I would say, are are fears of global growth as well as the re-escalation of the U.S.-China trade war. Um, But for all of 2019, uh, you know, we have seen this very significant rally in in the U.S. Treasury market. So we were just talking earlier about the inversion of the yield curve, the fact that the gap between 10-year and three-month Treasury yields is now inverted by the most since 2007, exceeding the lows reached back in March. Does this send a bearish signal to you? So, you know, look, it's something that, you know, we in advance have a big debate on, you know, does the yield curve matter or not? I'd certainly put myself in the camp that the yield curve does matter. Uh, I think it's a market signal. I think people that dismiss it, kind of do so at their own peril. Uh, you know, that being said, I think sometimes there's an obsession about, you know, particular parts of the front end of the yield curve. So I'd look more at kind of, you know, twos, tens, twos, thirties, uh, things like that. At least the twos, thirties hasn't continued to invert, which uh, t- to me is a, is a good sign. Uh, it's still relatively flat, but it hasn't kind of continued uh, the flattening that we saw last year. But certainly, as you mentioned, at the front end, uh, you do see some inversion. So I think, you know, it's like any market signal. Uh, I would not ignore it if I were the Fed, or if I were someone looking at the economy, I would certainly you know, take it seriously. So Eric, given where we are with these historically low rates, what are you doing with your portfolio right here? Yeah, so look, I think first off, from a, you know, a treasury perspective, look, to, to me, there, you know, the value in the treasury market is if you think that things are going to get worse from here, and I think the treasury market's pricing in a pretty bad outcome. Maybe things do get worse, so maybe there's some safety value. But to me, the the only really sector of the treasury market I, I really like uh, would be tips uh, on a kind of nominal uh, treasury hedge basis. I think there's a lot of policies uh, by the Fed as well as the trade war, a lot of policies that should lead to somewhat higher inflation. So I think duration had hedge tips could be attractive. Look, I also think parts of the emerging market bond complex look attractive as yields are so low, uh, not only in the U.S., but but in you know Germany, U.K., Japan, really all the whole developed market world. Uh, it makes places like emerging markets that, yes, there's volatility, uh, but if you look at you know what yields you're getting on emerging market assets versus treasuries uh, or other developed market bond markets, I think those are attractive. And I think if we're back, you know, if we're still in this Goldilocks, not too hot, not too cold world, it's actually actually a pretty good environment uh, for carry and and some of the riskier parts of the the fixed income markets. So, Eric, how much is this thesis predicated on the idea that the Federal Reserve will cut rates again uh, in the near term? Uh, so I don't think you need a cut uh, for emerging market uh, assets to do well. I certainly think if the Fed were to turn, you know, very hawkish and, and people are talking about rate hikes, that that would be uh, that that would be negative for sure. Um, but I think if, if rates just kind of stay where they are uh, in in the U.S., which you know whether it's front end, um, you know, or or back into the curve, kind of stay where they are. Uh, I think a lot of these uh, you know assets in emerging markets, you know, investors will once again be searching for yield, right. and they'll need to invest invest in, you know, somewhere else other than U.S. Treasuries. I guess another way to ask this is, you know, if the Federal if the Federal Reserve does cut rates as the market expects it to do within the next nine months, do you think that will be uh, an additional support to risk assets or that it will harm them because it will send a message uh, that is somewhat bearish on the U.S. economy? 
No, very good question. Look, I've you know I've never been in the school of thought, and I used to work at the New York Fed that the Fed knows something that let's say the markets don't, and so you know sometimes I think there can be confusion in policy statements, which which can lead to, to markets you know not behaving as as you would expect them to, i.e. you know U.S. rates going down or risk assets not doing well. Maybe the market was expecting more. Maybe the statement um, you know wasn't as, as dovish as people were expecting. So I, you know I can see that I'm not you know as I said of of the view that the Fed really knows more than than other than you know other market participants, um, you know I do think that um, you know if there are lower rates, you know certainly that helps. I also think something else that's going to start to get talked about is the U.S. dollar. I've actually been surprised uh, with with the strength of the U.S. dollar that we started to see some weakness last week. Uh, you know we've seen lots of tweets from President Trump about the Fed. I've actually been surprised we haven't seen more tweets about the U.S. dollar. And so if the Fed gets more dovish, that would be another uh, you know reason for the U.S. dollar to start to weaken, which should help uh, emerging market assets. Eric Stein, thank you so much for being with us. Eric Stein is Portfolio Manager and Co-Director of Global Fixed Income at Eaton Vance. For a few days now, a growing number of Wall Street analysts are coming out with predictions for how much uh, profits could drop at some of the big U.S. tech companies in the case of an escalation in the U.S.-China trade war. Joining us now to talk about how realistic this is, how significant the losses could be, David Garrity, Chief Market Strategist for Laidlaw & Co., also a partner at BT Block. So first, let's just start with, are we entering a tech war? And if so, what does that mean? No, certainly we're entering into you know, a widening, an era of widening tariffs. And, and certainly they're not just widening, but they're also growing greater. And while tariffs are paid by the U.S. consumers here relative to Chinese goods, the fact of the matter is, is that you are most likely are going to see U.S. products that are available in China. Think Apple iPhones as being potentially priced out of the market. But also at the same time, we're already operating in an environment between the U.S. and China, where China announced back in 2015 a 10-year plan. Communist countries like to do these things, 10-year plans. But theirs was Made in China 2025. And in that, they laid out goals to be leaders in 10 tech categories, all the way from artificial intelligence through aviation. How they were going to get there, obviously, has been unfolding over time. This tariffs that we're seeing right now, in some respects, is a reaction to that. But tariffs or no, I would still say that we're in a tech cold war between the United States and China, or more broadly, between China and the U.S. and its allies. So in terms of a tech cold war, I think it really ratcheted up for a lot of investors when uh, the U.S. government puts, you know, announced some sanctions on the Huawei. And you think about the global supply chain and what that means for Huawei and what that means for U.S. tech industries, the implications are just extremely broad. What is the risk, you think, if, if these sanctions do go through on Huawei, that China will retaliate, say, on an Apple and do something similar there? Well, I mean, China certainly, just to save face, is going to have to retaliate. And, and certainly, you know, they've been beating the drums in this regard, directly and indirectly. Um, but if China were to go through and actually, you know, take extreme action against, you know, a household brand name like Apple, um, you know, the fact remains is that China is still very, very heavily dependent upon U.S. suppliers of semiconductors. And for the time being, semiconductors are a fundamental or foundation technology as far as technology is concerned across a wide range of applications. So China would do this, obviously, 
to their own detriment. But nevertheless, I fully expect that because of the Kabuki theater that gets involved in terms of tariffs uh, and the need to save face, um, not to say that Trump doesn't engage in face-saving moves himself, but I think very much so that we're likely to see some sort of major response and reaction. Clearly, we've seen in terms of technology stocks after they came out with first quarter results back in April, you know, they, they pretty much kind of rolled over. And, and we've already seen a pullback uh, in terms of the Chinese tech names as well. So the prospect of a non-global market or a bifurcated market certainly is working to the detriment of the valuation of both U.S. as well as Chinese technology stocks. Who is going to suffer more, the U.S. or Chinese uh, tech companies? Um, I would make the argument that, uh, you know, at the end of the day, it's likely to be China to the extent that they're not going to have a, a larger end market available to them. Granted, you know, 1.3 billion people in, in China are a fair number of people to sell to in, in the first place. But clearly, if you're trying to make the investments necessary to scale up, far better if you had an integrated global market of, you know, 7 trillion, of 7, you know, 7 trillion consumers, 7 billion consumers to sell into uh, than, than a smaller Chinese market. So, David, one of the big, big global growth areas in technology uh, is 5G. Um, and I think when this Huawei news came out and trade tech wars started getting discussed, the concern is uh, any trade tech war could really impact the global development of 5G. Do you think that's a valid concern? No, it's very much of a valid concern. And when we look at 5G, you know, we're, we're looking at a platform technology. I mean, Certainly, the U.S. and U.S. technology companies were very successful in the 4G environment, witnessed the rise of Apple uh, in terms of the services they offered. Now, 5G promises a 20 times speed increase over 4G. And now what this is going to enable is a wide range of possibilities. Huawei has been already deemed by the Defense Innovation Board and an advisory council to the U.S. Department of Defense to potentially have a first mover advantage in 5G. 5G sets the rules by which the game is going to be played going forward. So what's happening with 5G is critical to the prospects, not just of the U.S. economy, the U.S. technology companies, but the global economy. And from that standpoint, you're already seeing, you know, concessions being made by American intelligence officials and telecoms executives saying that they think that in the future, 40 to 60 percent of networks over which businesses, diplomats, spies and citizens do business are going to be Chinese 5G. They're deeming these to be dirty networks to the extent that in China, it's a state controlled economy and businesses do what the state wants. Just real quick here, 20 seconds, are there any U.S. tech companies immune to the ongoing or more immune to the ongoing trade tensions? I think, you know, in terms of companies who are developing cybersecurity initiatives, uh, I mean, certainly that's an evergreen business, always has been. But I think the case for owning cybersecurity names only gets stronger in this type of an environment. Uh, names that have been competing directly, albeit they're not U.S. technology names. But if you look at Ericsson and Nokia, yep. they traditionally had been very strong telecommunications infrastructure yep. equipment suppliers. They, too, are going to be playing in 5G. I would expect them to see a benefit from this. Interesting. Trade tech wars. We'll certainly keep our eyes on that. That is not in anybody's best interest. David Garrity, chief market strategist from Laidlaw & Company, also a partner at BT Block. 
There were elections in the European Union, and if you read three different publications about what the outcome was, you will get three different stories. Either the centrists held steady, there was uh, there were gains made uh, by the populists, or uh, it is just a muddle that is par for the course. Right now, let's bring in Clive Crook to sort of parse through all of this and give us a sense of what the big takeaway is. He is an editor for Bloomberg Opinion. Clive, uh, so come on in here. What's your big takeaway? Which narrative is right? Well, you know, you're right, there's a muddle. And I think it's because the outcome is pretty complicated, you know. On the one hand, people are relieved that, um, you know, the far-right Eurosceptic parties didn't do better than they did. I mean, ahead of the elections, there was a lot of anxiety that those groups would see a real breakthrough. And that didn't happen. They, they did actually, they did quite well. I mean, they, they gained representation in the European Parliament, but it wasn't the sort of overthrow of uh, the center that some people were fearing. So that was the good news. And that's, as it were, one headline. But the other thing is that uh, the thing that pre- prevented uh, the far-right Eurosceptic parties from doing better than they did was a very strong showing from, as it were, centrist insurgents. I'm talking about liberals and greens. They did very well at the expense of the uh, you know, traditional center-left and center-right groupings. So the way I would sum that up is to say what you've seen is a sort of surprising sort of fragmentation of the center. It isn't that the center has been defeated by the far right, which is what I think a lot of people were worried about. The far right has made limited progress and the center has divided. And I think this matters because, you know, when you look at what's going to happen in the European Parliament now, when you have all the jockeying for position for top jobs in the commission, um, the old rules about who's in charge aren't going to apply. And I think you're going to see this fragmented center with these new guys, these, you know, lots of new liberals, lots of greens, uh, that process of getting to a new leadership structure in Brussels is going to be very difficult. So my take on the whole thing is that this is not such a great result for the European project, even though the Eurosceptics didn't try it. This fragmentation of the center is bad news, I think, for people who want you know, Europe to recognize problems, set priorities, and start working on solutions. I think that's right. going to be harder now than it was before. So, Clive, let's take a look at the U.K. It looks like the Brexit Party had strong performance. What are some of the takeaways as from what we saw in the U.K. elections, maybe what that means for the yeah. uh, Brexit pro- process overall? Well, you're not kidding. I mean, the Bre- Brexit Party uh, did sensationally well in these elections. Now, obviously, you know, Britain is a, is a special case because Britain is in the throes of this Brexit process. I mean, in many ways, it shouldn't have even been voting in these elections. So what that result means for Europe is a sort of second order question, I think. Um, the main thing is what the main question is, what does a triumph of the Brexit party mean for British politics? And it, it really was a triumph. I mean, Labour was killed in these elections and the Tories were just annihilated. This was the worst national election result the Tory party has suffered, I believe, in its history. I mean, it was as bad as that. They came fifth. In these, in these elections. This is the ruling party. Um, this sheds no light, whatever, you know, on how the Brexit mess is going to be resolved. I mean, Theresa May has already said she's resigning. 
the leadership contest, the Tories, is now underway. But nothing has changed. You know, there's no majority in the British Parliament to do anything. Um, the sort of steady majority is against everything. So that kind of paralysis is not going to be resolved one way or the other by this Brexit party performance in the European elections. I mean, that has, in effect, no direct implications for what's going on in the House of Commons. I think the situation in Britain is still as unpredictable as it was before. I mean, I can, you know, you could make a case for any, any outcome. You know, Brexit is cancelled, a hard Brexit with no deal, and yeah. everything in between. All these things are still on the table, I believe. Yeah, so the model continues, in, but I feel like there's a takeaway. You can actually unify European Union elections more broadly, as well as the Brexit-specific results, to sort of go back to exactly what you were saying, Clive, which is fragmentation yeah. within the middle uh, and a hardening on the more extreme ends of it. And I'm just wondering how much that's going to push the center toward a more extreme view. I mean, we're sort of seeing that with respect to Brexit discussions as well, where uh, there seems to be growing momentum for a second referendum or hard Brexit. It's sort of the, the two polar opposites uh, kind of gain steam and I'm just wondering uh, what you're seeing with that type of attitude within the European Union more broadly well you know I don't really look at it that way I mean I don't really look at it in terms of uh, this grouping um, uh, in the European Parliament as it were this broad center that includes you know the traditional center-left and the traditional center-right that got hammered in the elections and the new as it were these insurgents these new parties like you know Macron's movement they they They'll be part of the liberal grouping. Um, and the Greens, of course, they did very well also. But I don't see that that points you towards a single coherent ideology, which is either more or less extreme. The theme, I mean, the takeaway is that there isn't going to be a single theme or uh, you know, coherent set of policies. This is something the European Parliament has, has always struggled to come up with, you know, um, a, a coherent argument of the kind that you see t- in typical national elections. You know, there's a ruling party arguing X and an, a principal opposition party arguing Y. Right. And the elections organize themselves around those debates. Well, you aren't going to see that in Europe. It, you haven't seen it before. And now it's going to be even harder to imagine because of this fragmentation. So I think, you know, what European voters are going to see when they look at what's going on in the European Parliament is, you know, a mess, you know, an inconclusive mess. And um, the competition over who gets which job is going to uh, really demonstrate that. I mean, really underline this problem that there is no coherent political character in this in this assembly. Uh, this, you know, the, the old coalition between the centre-left and the centre-right tried to provide that kind of you know, organizing right. theme. That's going to be harder now than it was before. So I, think the, so I think the takeaway, Clive, is, for me at least, a mess. That's what we got from these elections. So anyway, <laughs> Clive, yeah, yeah. Clive Crook, thank you so much. Editor of Bloomberg Opinion based in Washington, D.C. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. 
I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.